that I would like to direct your attention today are found in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and that is from verse 5 to verse 11. Philippians 2, verse 5 through verse 11. I'm actually going to begin by reading in chapter 1, I mean, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, and then we'll focus our attention on 5 through 11. Paul writes, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Lord, as we approach your word, we are very much aware of our need for you to illuminate its truth to our hearts. Not just simply to understand what is being said, but to even understand what does this look like? How is it that we frail human creatures, so so much struggling with sin, can have the mind of Christ? And I pray that you would use your word to awaken us to be all that you have created us to be in causing us to be born again. And Lord, I'd even pray for anyone here that may not know you, that you would open their eyes to the glory of Christ, to be drawn to him as they would see that there is there was never any man on the face of this earth that accomplished anything close to what he accomplished And who had anywhere close to the love that he had. I pray that you would exalt yourself through your word and help me to accomplish that end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if a person were to ask you, what are the marks of a godly person? What would you say? What does, what does such a life look like? How would we know a godly person if we saw one? Who exhibits such a life worth following? One of the reasons I read Christian biography is because I want to see vivid examples of men and women who have lived out godly lives. And early on, I was particularly interested in finding out what decisions do they make? What was it that they did that set them apart from other individuals? 
But more and more as I've grown older and have struggled uh, to follow Christ with my life and to, and to put to death the deeds of the body, more and more I'm interested in how is it that they thought. Not so much in what they did, but why is it that they did what they did? What was, how did they approach life? How did they, what was the filter through which they thought? And in the passage before us, Paul helps us in that regard significantly. For he tells us exactly how Christ thought. And then he commands us to follow that same example in our own thinking. I mean, he tells us exactly what was the mindset of Christ so that we too can follow in his footsteps. It's an amazing passage. And last week in verses 1 through 4, we considered how Paul was exhorting the Philippians to maintain unity together. And the way they would maintain unity is through grace, through God's grace being poured out upon them, but also through humility towards one another. So in light of the gracious love and affection and fellowship that they have in Christ, that should compel them in having like-mindedness in Christ. And they would show that like-mindedness with Christ in doing nothing from selfishness or conceit, but rather thinking with a mindset of humility. And then beginning in verse 4, Paul illustrates what he means by pointing to the mind of Christ himself. So the Philippians will show this humble mindset, this like-mindedness with Christ, if they think with similar Christ-like humility. So they'll show that they, that they understand what selflessness and not being driven by conceit looks like if they think like Christ. Ligon Duncan, in preaching on this passage, said um, that Paul uh, compels us uh, to follow an example by giving us deep theology. And he points us to the greatest example ever, which is Christ. So he doesn't give us a pep talk. He doesn't, he doesn't, Paul doesn't seek to inspire us and, and, and give us just this vain um, cheer up, things are going to get better. He, he gives us deep theology in order that we might understand who is it that we follow. Who is it that we're being conformed to? And notice what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, he calls us to think the same way Christ thinks. no slides all right no slides we'll see if we can get that updated so think the way christ thinks it's point number one in your outline have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus now note when he says have this mind you'll you'll notice that he's using the same word that he used previously and i spent quite a bit of time last week explaining it's the word freneo and it has to do with a mindset so not just what a person thinks, but how they think. Why, why do they make the decisions that they make? It encompasses not just mental processing, but also the affections and the wills. You can think of it as our, our innermost being, what truly constitutes who we are. Why do we do what we do? 
And notice also that Paul says that this is the mindset that is to be present among yourselves. Among yourselves. So notice he's speaking to us as individuals, but also to us as a corporate body of believers. So this is the mind, excuse me, the mindset that individually we're supposed to have. We're all supposed to think with this sort of humility, but this is the same sort of mindset that should characterize us as a church. When a visitor comes in and they interact with us, this is what should be reflected. These are humble people who love their Lord because they're like their Lord. They think like their Lord. So all Christians and the church are to think in this way. And there's one more phrase I want to draw your attention to in this verse because it's, it could easily be passed over, but it's critical. It's the phrase, in Christ Jesus. It's just a short prepositional phrase, three words, but it's loaded with theology. There's so much theology in these words. Actually, Paul spends Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8 explaining what it means to be in Christ. Now, I'm tempted to just open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, or 5 through 8 and read it. But you might be here far too long if that's, if that's what happens. But it's a loaded phrase. And what it points to is that the Christian who has been born again has had his mind transformed. In coming to Christ, in getting saved, we'll use that language, a person's mind is transformed. That was part of their being born again. And the term in Christ describes the reality that when a person puts their faith in Christ, they're at, they actually become united to Him in a, in a spiritual sense. Every Christian is spiritually united to Christ. And the result of this unification is transformation. They receive the mind of Christ. And what that means, it's not that they know what He knows, because we certainly don't know what Christ knows, but we think with the same mindset. Our priorities are changed to be in line with his priorities. Our loves are changed. Our affections are changed to be in line with his. Our mind has been transformed. Again, Romans 5 through 8 develops this fully. But I just want to briefly look at what he says in Romans 6, just to get a taste. So if you would turn over in your Bibles a few pages to Romans 6, we'll get a glimpse of the miraculous transformation that takes place in us when we're united to Christ. And again, this is the theme from 5 through 8, but just these few verses I think will be helpful. Romans 5, or sorry, Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Beginning of verse 5, chapter 6, he says, For if we've been united with him, In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you 
also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, just as Christ died to sin, he was crucified. Likewise, if you've been united with him by faith, you died his death. You died. So when you place your faith in Christ, his death became your death. The old self was crucified with him. Now that's deep. That's deep. But likewise, the life that he lived now becomes your life. And just as he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead too. So what happened to Christ happened to you, spiritually speaking. And that's why your mind has been transformed. As Paul speaks of in Philippians. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 says it this way. Maybe a little simpler. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if we're in, if we're in Christ, we put to death those passions that were once ours. And we live to the Spirit. Now somebody at this point might be thinking, wow, I put to death my passions. Well, what about my current struggles? If my mind has been transformed to be like Christ and I've died with him, why is it that I struggle so much with sin? Because we could be easily discouraged. If, if this has happened, how come it doesn't look like that in my life? Well, to encourage us, this is really the purpose of Romans chapter 7. Inwardly, the core of ourself has been transformed. But outwardly, our flesh is still corrupted by sin. And so, there's a war that's going on. Our corrupted flesh that still has sin in it, with our renewed uh, spirit living in us. And there's this battle. The flesh wars against the spirit. And so our flesh is still easily tempted. And it will be. We'll still struggle with this fight to resist sin until we get a resurrected body. And this is why Paul says in Romans 7.25, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I serve the law of God with my mind. With my inner self, with this mind that's been made to be like Christ. I serve God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. My flesh wants to sin. And so there's this fight that goes on. And to help us how to know how to fight this fight, Paul gives us Romans chapter 8. But maybe even more helpful, he gives us Philippians chapter 2. And that's why he says what he does. He says, let this mind be of yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've been given this mind. And as we... As we embrace this sort of mind, because our flesh, as we, as we dive into Philippians chapter 2, our flesh is going to say, oh no, I don't want that. That has no appeal to me. Or that's what your flesh is going to say. And, and, and the, the, world, the, the, the thinking of the world will come into your mind like, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound good. That does not sound like something I want. That doesn't sound beautiful. That sounds really ugly. But... The mind that's been renewed, that's been transformed to be like Christ is going to say, oh, that is beautiful. And as we learn to embrace Christ's mindset that we already have and we learn to embrace it, it will help us fight sin. 
It'll help us fight sin in our flesh so that we can have joy like Paul. So that when we're suffering, maybe even being imprisoned like Paul, we can think like Paul and rejoice like Paul and not get discouraged and continue to fight the fight. So that's why if you notice, Paul is not giving this to us as a theological lecture, though it's loaded with theology. Paul tells the Philippians these things in these verses to help them. This is all an illustration of how they need to think so that they can have joy amongst themselves. The joy that Paul has. He's simply telling us to think according to the transformation that has taken place within us. In other words, just as you are now in Christ, continue to think like Christ. Think according to his mindset. And to clarify for us how Christ thought, what his mindset was, Paul delineates it in the verses that follow. And really the next few points on our outline, I made like five points, I think. Five, is that right? Okay. Really, point one and point five are different. It's points two, three, and four really explain point one. Explain Christ's mindset. And then point five is a therefore. In light of this, let me encourage you with this news. All right, point two in your outline. He did not hold on to his rights. The first thing this tells us about Christ's mindset is he did not hold on to his rights. Verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Point your finger to the word form. It's a familiar word. It's the word morphe. Where we get the term morphology, which describes the, the way words change over time. Or, maybe more popularly, mighty morphing power rangers. It's that same, same term. To morph is to change, Right? And it refers to something's nature, character, and outward appearance. It's the word form. It's what something looks like. It's its form. Sometimes form will change. And the phrase form of God refers to the glory that Christ possessed prior to his incarnation. Prior to taking on flesh. When he was an eternity past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He lived in eternal bliss and eternal glory. John 17, 5 says, Jesus says, as he prays to God the Father, the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus lived in eternal glory in a way that we just can't conceive of in our minds. I mean, he was very God of very God and his very being was glorious. It radiated glory. His essence was glorious. And though that was his nature, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, Christ did not regard his equality with God as something to be taken advantage of. Although he was very God of very God, worthy of all worship, from the myriads and thousands or billions of angels, however many there are. Although he was worthy of worship from everything in creation, he let go of that right to honor God, to fulfill the mission before him. I mean, think about this. Worship was his by right. 
And not by a mere constitutional right. Not by a legal right. It was his right by his very nature. To theologians say, it was his ontological right. It was based upon his very existence. He, his existence deserved worship. And yet he was willing to part with his rights for the purpose of honoring the Father's will. Now we get upset when our constitutional rights are violated. And rightly so. We get even more upset if our humanity is violated. And rightly so. But think of this. Christ willingly, freely allowed his deity to be violated in order to bring you to God. That's what it means. He did not hold on to equality with God. As a perfect being, he suffered all the degradation of life, sickness, poverty, broken relationships, slander and then he suffered under the wrath of god for sins he did not commit for sins he did not commit he allowed himself to be humiliated which is what we deserved we deserve to be treated that way Because we have all sinned. We deserve that kind of treatment. Not just from God, but really from the world. Because we have sinned against one another in how many countless times. Yet he did nothing. In violation of God's law or towards another being. And yet, he gave up those rights to bring us to God. John Locke famously said that all all humans are born with certain natural rights. The philosopher um, in the Enlightenment, we took some of these words and put them into our Constitution. He said that they were born with the natural rights of life, liberty, and property. But remember that Jesus relinquished all of these natural rights to serve the Father's purpose. And here Paul is saying, we need to think with the same mindset. And this is actually in line with what Christ teaches elsewhere. So I want to show you in just a few places how Christ allowed his life to be taken, his liberty to be taken, and his property to be taken. And then he also commands us. In Luke 17, 33. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And then Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value. He's willing to give it up as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, like Christ, is willing to give up his life. And we're called to follow in the same way. In Matthew 23, 11, Jesus tells us that the greatest among you shall be your servant. It's actually the word slave that's used. Do loss. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest among you shall be willing to have your liberty taken. 
shall act like a slave. First Corinthians nine nineteen, Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, a slave to all that I might win more of them. So Paul, too, recognizes I don't claim any of these rights, even my own liberty. And notice also what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount regarding property. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If anyone forced you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The author of Hebrews says, For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. I mean, honestly, only a person whose mind has been radically transformed would think like that. Would willingly choose to think in such a way. That's why Paul says, let this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, think according to it. So not only did Christ not hold on to his rights, he also condescended to serve others. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word emptied himself is worth a sermon in and of itself. It's the theological term kenosis, based on the Greek word there. And it describes the reality that Christ, who was fully God of fully God, became fully man. That's a, that's a, that's again, that's worth a sermon in and of itself. How does that work? But that's what's being described here. The, the word kenosis can mean to cause to lose power, to be emptied, to come to nothing. And actually the root of this word is the word vanity or the word emptiness. It was used... Um, a couple of verses earlier, that word that's in verse three translated conceit. Remember, I said it's the word empty glory. The word kino, it's that's kinodoxia there. This is the word kinosis. The, the root is the word empty, vain. In verse three, oh, sorry, in, in verse seven, therefore, what this is telling us is that Jesus left true eternal glory and chose instead to take on the emptiness and vanity of this life when he became a man. So instead of thinking according to empty glory, like the way this world thinks, the things that are transient, that pass away, that don't last, could be reputation, could be trophies, could be money, things that pass away, the things that you don't take with you, that really don't matter, that are here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus gave up that in order to take on emptiness, Take on the vanity of human life. When he became man, he, in a sense, became empty by taking on human flesh. When he was the essence of everything. I mean, that's mind-boggling. He went from eternal glory as, and worship as God to the degradation of a slave and took on human flesh in order to atone for humanity's sin. I liked what one commentator said. He said, when Jesus emptied himself by embracing the divine vocation and becoming incarnate, he became a slave without any rights whatsoever. 
He did not exchange the nature or form of God for that of a slave. Instead, he displayed the nature or form of God in the nature or form of a slave. Thereby showing clearly not only what his character was like, but also it meant to be God. So we didn't exchange the form of God for that of a slave, but actually displayed the character of God, the form of God in the form of a slave. Displaying what it meant to be God. Some of you might have heard of Robertson McQuilkin. And he is such an example of Christ-like condescending love. Last year, he passed away at age 88. And he was formerly the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. And in 1990, which was 27 years ago, 28 years ago, he stepped away from that prestigious position to care for his ailing wife. His wife, Muriel, had developed Alzheimer's disease. And it had gotten to the point where uh, she was terrified to be alone without him. If he wasn't there, she would go into the, you know, convulsions of fear. And some of his friends advised him to put her into an institution. But he chose instead to leave his position as president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, eight years short of retirement. So he also gave up his retirement in order to care for her. And his resignation speech was closed with him saying, it's not that I have to do it, it's that I get to do it. I love her very dearly. It's not easy to talk about. She's a delight and it's a great honor to care for such a person. And in 2004, McKilkin explained his decision to Christianity Today. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And of course, he was simply leaning upon and following the example of his Savior. Because he had been given the mind of his Savior. So he condescended to serve others. But not only did Christ condescend to serve others, he humbled himself to the point of crucifixion. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So having become man, he humbled himself even still further to the point of death. His obedience knew no limits. There was no point to which he was not willing to go. There was no point at which he said no to God. As he said in John 16, oh, sorry, John 6, 28, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm going to do God's will, not my own. 
And recognize not only was he willing to obey to the point of death, but to the death that was worst imaginable. One commentator described crucifixion this way. It represented the acme of the torturer's art. Nothing could be more horrifying than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, and yet reduced to a state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot even say that the crucified person writhed in agony. For it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable to even brush away flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scourging, exposed to the insults and curses of people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the tortures of others, a feeling that is increased, not diminished by the sight of pain. The cross represented the miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all that the ardent, most ardent torturer could desire. Torture, pillory, degradation, and certain death. I mean, recognize this. Again, there was no point that he would ever have told God no. He was willing to do whatever it took to honor God the Father. And as I considered this, I was reminded of my freshman year of college. I was in a um, very serious relationship with a girl. And um, I had gone, I had returned from college to, to visit her. And actually I was trying to discern is 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 this a girl that I should marry and uh, over the three weeks while I was at home it became very clear that this was not a healthy relationship and that I needed to break up with this girl and I remember praying and wrestling and again it was just it, it couldn't have been any more clear and I remember praying to God and saying I won't do it I know that's what you want me to do, but I will not do it. I can't do it. And in God's sovereignty and in his love, the next day she came over to my house and promptly dumped me. There should never be a point where a Christian says no to God. Because we've been given the mindset of Christ. We should not be unwilling to forgive we should not be unwilling to bar, uh, break away from unhealthy relationships. We should not be unwilling to give up any sort of addiction. Unwilling to live in love with a less than lovable spouse. Unwilling to discipline our children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we should not be unwilling to submit to authorities. Be they our bosses, our parents, police officers, even presidents. Assuming that what they're asking to do isn't contrary to God's law. Obviously, if they're asking us to do something that's contrary to God's law, 
You know, we will obey God rather than men. Right. Jesus resisted the sin of self-centeredness to the extent that he died. Even the utterly shameful death of a cross. And this is why the author of Hebrews encourages us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's saying, remind yourselves, Christian, as you're going through difficult times, as you're suffering, remember, that's what consider him means. Remember him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then we come to verse 9. All of that was for our example, that we would understand what the mind of Christ is. And then in verse 9, that Paul takes a little turn of a corner to encourage our hearts to a massive degree. And my prayer for you has been that you would see all the glory of these next few verses. And that this, the glory of verses 9 through 11 would compel you to embrace all that he said in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 through 8. God exalted him because of his humble obedience. Notice verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, notice that God exalted Jesus... In response to his total self-humbling. Notice the word, the very first word there in verse 9, therefore. It's in light of what Christ did. It's in light of how Christ thought and therefore how he lived that he was honored. So this is the supreme illustration of Christ's promise that whoever humbles himself, whoever is willfully humiliated... For the sake of God, will be exalted. He says this in Matthew twenty three twelve, Luke fourteen eleven, Luke eighteen fourteen, James four, verse six and verse ten. This this promise gets repeated throughout Scripture. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and Christ is a supreme example because he humiliate he humbled himself to an extent that none of us can ever touch. And therefore, he's been given a name that is above every name. But as we follow after him in in willfully being humiliated for the sake of God's glory and honor, we too will be honored. It's a promise. Highly exalted. He's highly exalted. The, The word means that he's raised to the supreme position. You can't get any higher then the glory that Christ will receive. We get a glimpse of that, of course, in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Where myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands bow their knee and proclaim glory be to the Lamb of God. Not only was he exalted, it says he was given a name above every name. Now, this term, the name, doesn't maybe strike us like it should, because we, we, don't, we don't use that phrase as much anymore in the 21st century. One commentator I read noted that 
in ancient thought, a name was employed not only as a means of distinguishing one person from another, but also as a means of revealing the inner being, the true nature of an individual. Remember in the old Westerns when they'd say, you know, you need to maintain your family name. You know, where a son would go do something stupid and, uh, you know, the father would have to rebuke his son and he said, you need to uphold the family name. That was, there's a reputation. When a person hears the name Nail, that has a connotation that comes with it. Or Gutierrez. You need, that, there's some glory, there's some honor that goes with that name. Another commentator said, it's, the name was something real, a piece of the very nature of the personality whom it designated. The name partakes in, in his qualities and in his powers. So even, even, this just comes to my mind, even witchcraft, the, the idea is that if you know the name of maybe a, a certain demon, you have power over that demon. The name means you, you know something to, an, to, to a great degree. You can think of it as a supreme title that not only designates authority, but it's representative of the very nature of the person. So you could also think of how Native Americans uh, often will name their children based upon some personality or qualities of the children. Their name, it, it's, a, it's, it's not just simply a title that's given. It is a title, but it's a title that conveys the reality of who that person is. And then he says, because he's been exalted in light of his obedience and given this name that's above every name... At that name, when people hear that name, the name Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And that's a mark of extreme abasement and submission. As everyone bows the knee, they're, they're demonstrating universal homage. And every creature on the face of this earth will give universal homage and proclaim he is worthy. And he alone is worthy of glory. Every creature... Angels, demons, humans, I, I assume even animals. People who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ will all worship Christ. And note the superlatives here. Every knee will bow. Every name. He's given a name above every name. Every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. So every location and every tongue, every, 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 because Christ is worthy of all of that in light of what he did. You see that? It's because Christ had that mindset, because he was willing to trust God and he was willing to obey God to the point that he was willing to let go of his rights as God. Because of his love for us and his love for the Father, he was exalted. And what, this, what Paul is saying, notice this. This is not just talk, talk about the glory that Christ deserves. Paul is telling us this because he's saying, if you likewise embrace this 
mindset that is yours already in Christ Jesus. If you embrace this mindset and put to death the deeds of the flesh, don't think like the world that says exalt yourself. Get as much as you can. Get as much praise. Get as much love. Get as much affection. Get as much glory. If you resist that and instead embrace the mind of Christ that is already yours, this is what will happen to you as well. You will be honored. You will be exalted because of what? Because of how you've lived and what you've done. Paul tells us this to encourage us. Because, and we're going to need this encouragement. Brothers and sisters, if you've experienced humiliation for the sake of Christ, it is extremely painful. And everything in you, and this is how Satan works, everything in you is going to, you're going to hear, you don't deserve this. This, this just isn't fair. In, in fact, you're probably the only one that's having to deal with this. And you're, just, and you're going to be tempted so strongly to just throw in the towel. Because, and, you're going to be th- and you're going to hear things in your mind. And you're, and you're going to think, you know, Christ would never want me to go through such a humiliating experience. He would never want me to be treated like this. Because He loves me. We've got to remember that God the Father loved God the Son more than anybody. And yet he willingly, allowed, he willingly called the Son to such a mindset. And Christ obeyed. And because Christ obeyed, he was honored. And so we need to remember that as we're tempted to give up and to, and to embrace, go back to the world. This will hold us fast. There's hope coming. Civilization has always honored its heroes. Victorious consuls in Rome would parade through the city dressed as the god of Jupiter. And all the Romans would stand and applaud. Today we make movies about momentous people. In fact, and we'll write books about them. We give chairs to those who have reached the pinnacle of academia. We give Nobel Prizes to those who have, you know, accomplished some great feat. We throw parades for Super Bowl champions. Throughout history, society has honored those that they think have reached the height of human achievement. And it's here. It's here that we see God honoring what He considers the height of human achievement. Complete selflessness. And again, remember, Paul is telling us this for our benefit. He's calling us to embrace the mind of Christ. Not just because we should think this way in light of being saved. Not just because he wants unity in the church. He's telling us this to encourage us with the fact that such a life of willing humiliation for the sake of the glory of God is the kind of life That God honors. It's the kind of life that brings God the most pleasure. Because it it shows that he's most precious to us. As John Piper likes to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And what is the best way to show that we're satisfied in him? When we show to the world that you can slander me, you can take my property, you can even take my life. You can take it all, but give me Jesus. And, when, and when, when that's not just words, 
but people see that in our actions and they, and they see it because it's just real, they will then, as Peter says, glorify God in the day of visitation. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, you know us. And you know, you know how much we are all so infected with the, this world and its selfishness and its pride and its lust. Lord, we can easily just excuse our pride and justify it as right. Lord, we, there is nothing in us except the Holy Spirit. And His work in our life that would ever embrace this. And that's why I say that, God, because we need You to do a miracle in us. Not just because You've done this miracle already in bringing us to Christ, but God, we, we are so infected with this world and its thinking and our flesh loves it that we need You to, to work all the more powerfully. And so we beg You, help us to, to think like this. And if, if we need to be humiliated in order to embrace a a humble mindset, Lord, we ask that you would do it. And as we are humiliated, God, that that we would see your hand in it, that we wouldn't lose heart, that we wouldn't turn back, that we wouldn't embrace the flesh. We'd continue to resist it. And that we would find in embracing humility that we would find satisfaction in you, that you would fill our souls, that you would show us this really is better than the vanity of this life. Satisfy us with your loving kindness. Convince us all the more of the truth of what you say here so that we might be full of joy. That it wouldn't just be words that we say, it would be the very life that we live. And it wouldn't just be evident to us, it would be evident to all. And that as we do this as individuals, that this attitude, this mindset would happen among ourselves. That this is what people would see in Grace and Truth Bible Church. They wouldn't see a building, they wouldn't see a pastor, they wouldn't see ministries. They would see a mindset. A mindset that looks like Christ. And they would ask, where's the hope that causes you to live in such a way. And that through that, through your work in us, this miraculous work, you would use that and our proclamation of our hope to bring many to know you. We ask this because we need your help. Holy Spirit, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.